Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode two of season two of the Free Agents podcast. We are pleased to be here with the distinguished guest, David Cooper, our former professor, and now uh, I would say mentor to all of us, who's been a, a great help to all of us. I would say that uh, Coop actually knows that my first podcast experience was uh, for a class that I did with him. Uh, sadly, that episode is deep, deep in the in the archives of my computer, but um, I was very thankful for that. And I know that he's great uh, on podcasts, so we thought we'd have him on. I'm really excited. Uh, and we thank you for taking the time out of your night to do this. So My pleasure. Three of my favorite people. Um, and don't let that other podcast ever see the light of day, because I have no <laughs> idea what was said. Um, <laughs> I thought it was in private, but that's okay. No, nah, you were great. You were great. Do not do not worry. I got an A on that assignment, which I think uh, and that's, in the short that's term all that matters. was all that exactly. mattered. Exactly. Uh, of course. So just, just to start, uh, for the people who aren't familiar with the man, the myth, the legend, David Cooper, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, what, what makes David Cooper tick? What makes you get up in the morning? What are you up to? It's like the one question in a job interview that you absolutely um are you can't sleep at night the night before because you're gonna get it um so who am i so i'm kind of you know i'm kind of a unicorn guys um meaning that i i, I do a lot of things i'm not sure i specialize in any one thing but for me as a human um you know i i have multiple sides of myself one i run a communications company where i'm working with um sports companies, brands, athletes, and helping them to communicate better, share their story, hopefully generate business, uh, and amplify all the really cool things they're doing. But, you know, I follow a lot of my passions and sports is one of my passions, but not my only passion. So on top of trying to manage a business and do all the things that the three of you will ultimately have to do, which is pay your bills, um, <laughs> keep the lights on. Uh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to always hold on to the other things that kind of fuel my life um, and fuel my spirit and kind of feed my soul. doesn't mean that sports PR doesn't do all of that, but deep down it probably doesn't. So um, <laughs> on top of that, I'm, you know, I'm, working on a number of creative projects and Andrew, you and I have talked a little bit about the creative vein that we both have. Yep. Storytelling and, and working in, uh, you know, film and TV and so forth, working on a few projects and trying to complete a novel, which hopefully I turn into uh, a film project. So on top of kind of running a business, uh, I'm trying to get, you know, kind of the creative juices going. I'm also, trying to be a good son like all of you are probably trying to do um you know i go sure. back and forth to see my parents as, as much as i can uh you know and just trying to i don't know better myself i know that sounds kind of um flip floppy but i'm just trying to like every day and i think the pandemic you guys would in fact if, if i were to ask anybody it would be uh students um you know exactly what that means like during the pandemic you had to kind of reach down and kind of find something yourself to get through the exhaustive zooms or yeah. you know, not be able to see people or conduct the networking that you typically would do. Yeah. And I'm just trying to like find my way through life. Um, be a better person. Hey, so I mean, that's I'm, me. I'm glad that uh, even though that you're way more advanced in your career than we are, we're all kind of striving for the same things. So it's good to know that 
even farther down the line, the same, the same things will be very crucial, especially yeah. in terms of finding yourself, because I think, especially with yeah. COVID, it was very difficult to kind of pinpoint what exactly was going on and like, okay, like this is what I really want to do. Um, so it's good to know that that will continue. And, it's a great uh, point. Like, seriously, guys, and, and all of you have been in my class, like what I went through 30 years ago is exactly the same thing you're going through. Um, you have the internet, you have Google, all that stuff. It's the same, <laughs> it's the same thing. It's yeah. human beings interacting with each other and trying to move forward. That's it. It's right. not, it's, it's not like, you know, a, a hard problem to solve. That's what it is. Yeah. Speaking of, of 30 years ago, the first question that I think would be a great place to start is how did you get your first job? Ah, and was it was yes. it what you wanted to do? I think a lot of people talk about, oh, like your first job isn't really, you know, the best job. Obviously, it's what you have to do to get in the door. And how did that yeah. first experience shape the rest of your career? Yeah, it's interesting. So my first my first job, like real full time job out of college um, was actually in politics. Um, but I do want to rewind a little bit um, and go back to my first real job as an intern. And I won't spend a lot of time on it, but it's it's important to make the connection. I had a very inauspicious start to my career. So I walked on to the University of Arizona football team. I thought I was going to be an All-American. And I broke my nose twice in the same week. And I hightailed it to the sports information office and <laughs> left the football career um, over there. And I started in communications. But what it did was it put me immediately in the center of having to deal with um, athletes and teams and having to be a spokesperson, even as a student, as a freshman, um, a spokesperson for a football team or a basketball team. And it just so happened Steve Kerr had, had just led the Wildcats to a Final Four, so it was a really exciting time to be part of it. Um, but what it did was it opened doors for me to go work at the uh, the NFL team in my hometown, hometown of Phoenix. So I would like go back and forth from Tucson to Phoenix on weekends and work games um, mm -hmm. in Phoenix, come back, and ultimately, girlfriend left. I was pretty much bankrupt, living with five dudes. So I transferred. I transferred from Arizona to Arizona State <laughs> and to work for the Cardinals. And I was their media intern. But the reason why this is important is that six months later, I took an internship with the Phoenix Suns. So literally the day after Charles Barkley comes to Phoenix, they inherit a skinny intern with like khakis and penny loafers and a really bad haircut. But um, the reason why this leads up to my first job is that um, I was immediately thrust into, again, kind of the crucible, right? You had the, the NBA's most popular team. You had, you know, the most, you know, um, maybe polarizing is not the right word, but Charles was like the guy in the NBA other than Michael. Right. Uh, everyone, it was like the Beatles. When I traveled with that team, it was literally like traveling with the Beatles and to kind of like go through those experiences, it really set myself up for my first job. So when I graduated um, Arizona State, I couldn't get hired to save my life. I, I was like, listen, I get all these great internships. I just went to the NBA finals and no one would hire me. So I contacted uh, my uh, senator from Arizona, John McCain, his office, and I interned for his office when I was in high school. And they had an opening in the Washington, D.C. office. I'm like, okay, well, listen, I'm going to go take all the experience that I had in sports, communications, media, and so forth, and it will translate to a career in politics, right? Because it's all constituent-based and all that stuff. So yeah. Yeah. I graduated, 
I went uh, on to become a substitute teacher for a while. I worked at a bookstore, went home for lunch and never came back. True story. And, <laughs> and, and, and they, finally, they, they finally offered me a job in D.C. So I moved to D.C. for my first ever job. So a weird way to say um, I started in sports. It helped prepare me for my next transition. Uh, which was politics. I stayed in DC for a year and worked for both of my senators from Arizona and then came back and actually went back to work for the Suns um, before I went on to um, the rest of my career uh, in arena football and, and then ultimately the NBA. That's yeah. That's actually, oh, go ahead, Bryn. Well, it all started with a broken nose. It all started <laughs> with a broken nose. Exactly. Well, no, I mean, hearing all those transitions is very interesting and really, like, I don't know, your path uh, getting to where you are today has been slightly unconventional. But out of all of your work experiences, which one was the most formative? Like, meaning, at which point did you think to yourself, like, this is really what I want to do for the rest of my career? The really interesting question. And I saw that earlier. And I was like, you know, so I'm not, I'm never really settled. And I, and I, to be honest with you, and, and I come from a generation, which is, you know, generation X, which is all focused on independence and, you know, the work life balance bullshit, which really doesn't exist. <laughs> Entre the entrepreneurial spirit, which all of you have. Um, but that's where my generation came from. We, we kind of like, you know, our parents and our grandparents stayed in their jobs for 50 years and, you know, Many uh, of us were raised by, you know, single family households and, and, you know, just strive. Right. So my generation was able to kind of like use all of that and, and fuel it to become a very self-aware generation. So I think um, I look at myself as a little bit of a disconnect from my generation, but still, I think each of my destinations is, is, is kind of connected. And so each job I've had, there's been something formative, but if I were to single like one job or one experience out it probably would be the nba maybe circa 2008 2009 having just come through um a big uh cultural shift in the league um we had you know uh player issues that were being resolved um you know the the image of the league was going through a whole transformation we had hurricane katrina which which launched NBA cares, which launched more of the focus on the, the player and their impact in communities and something formative did happen. And that was that I was able to then work with the players and help, um, help, I, I guess, kind of tell their story off the basketball court. Um, and, and what it did was the reason why it was formative is that it, it actually sparked something in me. I was like, you know what, I really want to go work with athletes because I think, you know, you can get caught up in all the team and league stuff, and that's really cool. But really, the uniqueness of the athlete is what really um, sparked my imagination to go run my own company, go work directly with athletes, help them build their portfolios, um, you know, work on projects that are more like, you know, legacy projects. So, for instance, when I left the NBA, I started my own company, um, and I worked with Kurt Warner, who's a Hall of Fame quarterback. Kurt's got a movie coming out December 23rd. Well, that originated 12 years ago when we had a conversation about how do you want to tell your story and leave your legacy? Long story short, won't take up the time of the podcast, but 
And 12 years later, there's a movie coming out. So those types of things. I've worked on children's books with athletes. And so, Brandon, just to go back to your point, like, maybe that was the one thing that kind of led me down a totally different path that I, I probably would have had I not been more involved in the player stuff. I probably would have been sleeping under my desk, banging out media notes, you know, worried about the TV ratings and all that other crap. Uh, but that did spark something. So to this day, I work with athletes on their, their brand outside of whatever sport they play. I don't care how many points you have or, you know, where you are on the leaderboard. Yeah. I care more about if you started your foundation, like how are you using your social media to kind of engage partners, fans, how are you demonstrating your personality to people? That's what I love doing. And all of my clients, I get a chance to work with athletes. So it, it, that really was probably the single moment or experience that I had to kind of change my course. Well, that's really interesting because I, mean, I, I know that like you're kind of ahead of the whole athletes kind of taking control of their own narrative kind of movement. I mean, we see that now with athletes, you know, being more vocal about, you know, political issues or things like that, but they now have that, that ability to take those stances, to be able to branch out to different things and build their brands out. I think that's really interesting that like you were so far ahead of like the rest of the sports landscape in terms of that, like, you know, it's, uh, thank you for that. And I certainly won't take any credit, but, um, I've been fortunate. I've been fortunate to be part of some really interesting movements. And, and listen, I started, you know, when I was at the Suns, um, you know, Charles was, was very much a, a vocal, um, you know, athlete. He's the one who said, you know, I'm not a role model. And that sparked a whole national debate, right? Yeah. It was pre-social media and all that stuff. But I got a chance to kind of watch how, you know, the athlete, the perception of the athlete changed even back then. And then when I got to the league and you started working with athletes on various initiatives and causes, I mean, don't forget, Steve Nash was was the first athlete in the NBA to wear t-shirts protesting war. Like you didn't do that. You know, like nobody paid attention to it. Nobody asked him questions about it. The media was just as complicit as the other branches of, of sports when it came to giving athletes a voice. And I remember being in meetings at the NBA when we were going through a lot of a lot of issues. I'm like, you know, if we just had like a and, and this is a strong term, if we just had like a martyr, like somebody March a few years later, you've got Colin Kaepernick, Kaepernick right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who got blackballed by the NFL. Yep. They admitted it, tried to apologize for it flimsily um, <laughs> and like way too late. Yeah. But he, he was a martyr. The media misconstrued the whole reason why he was doing all that stuff, right? So I was a part of that working with the NFLPA to watch kind of how he was treated um, and, and, you know, how everyone tried to kind of support him and help him in, in any way they could. But ultimately became too big, but it launched other movements. So now I'm involved yeah. with the WNBA players. I went through the entire social justice, Black Lives Matters um, movements last summer. And, you know, the working with the Atlanta Dream players and, and kind of crafting, you know, how they were going to communicate back to their, their um, constituents and their fans and, you know, to the nation writ large, how these athletes were taking it upon themselves. So that's one part of it. Um, Andrew, the second part is like, we're in the middle of a huge shift right now, led by athletes when it comes to owning their own narrative, like controlling the content that's around them. You guys know, athlete driven media is my, like, I think that is 
what is going to be the future. Yes, sir. You're already yes, seeing sir. it, you know, Absolutely. like, and it's yeah. only been highlighted more by, by athletes like Naomi Osaka and others who are like, listen, I don't need the media to be my mouthpiece. You'll hear it yeah. directly from me. Well, I put that on, I don't know if you guys follow me on Twitter, but I tweeted like, Hey, media, get used to it. And I had all these people come at me from the New York times, um, you know, prominent writers, like you sound like Trump. Isn't that what Trump said? Like, okay, first of all, you're an idiot. Yikes. Um, oh, man. And I, I would name names and you can go find it on Twitter. But Harvey Ariton. Harvey Ariton. Yeah. And he knows it. Too. It was a ludicrous, it was a ludicrous comment because because they're afraid. They're afraid. Yeah. They, they, everything's yeah. different, right? So yes, I'm very passionate about it. I think athlete empowerment is is exactly what needs to happen right now. And you're seeing more of it now at the Olympics. You know, where you know Simone Biles is literally taking herself out of competition because she can. Yeah. You know, yeah. she's not beholden to anyone other than herself. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We may not like it, and I wish she would compete, all that stuff, but it's the athlete that matters. Yeah. And um, I think it's it's definitely you talk about formative um, moments and changes, Brandon. Like this world that we're living in, because I've come through it for thirty years, and I remember when athletes didn't have a voice. I remember, you know, working Arizona women's basketball games back in like 89, 90, 91, tremendous players. And I'm like, you know what? They're never going to be able to go play. There were no women's leagues at the time. They had all these wonderful personalities, things to say, you know, great backgrounds, great stories, but they had no platform, none. So to see that happen and that I can be a part of it, this old balding gray haired you know, dude, like, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. And I'm glad you guys are like, just at the the tip of the spear of this, because it's only going to get, you know, um, broader. And now with college, and, you know, Matthew, you know, as well as anybody, the college athletes um, right now are taking control of their narrative. Like that should have happened 20 years ago. You know, there's no reason for it. So yeah, I love it. I think it's great. I think it's by the way, I think it's good for everyone in the industry. I think it, it, you know, the, the rising tide raises all boats or whatever. Like, I think it's all good. If media companies like IE Barstool, like engage it, engage with it and embrace it and like be part of it. Don't try to like isolate yourself and say, well, you're not doing it the right way. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's something that I was thinking about because, you know, we've come a long way in terms of like athletes having their own brand, but especially like when you look at something like Simone Biles, just, you know, today was it today she took herself out of competition because of her mental health and the amount of backlash that that received by people. And it's just kind of like, you've done amazing work advocating for women's sports, specifically with the NBA and their, their CBA negotiations and working with them. Um, You touched on it earlier, but with the Olympics kicking off and like more athlete, female athletes uh, vaulting into the spotlight, how do you think the industry can better do a better job of like, creating equality and making sure that women's sports has the equality it deserves. Because I mean, we're still in that shift right now, I think mentally where we want to push women's sports, but we aren't quite there in terms of acceptance with a lot of people. Yeah. It, it's, um, and I, and I deal with it on a daily basis, uh, whether I'm, you know, kind of consulting with, with the WNBA players or the U S women's national soccer team player association or, you know, any number of, groups um and and you know companies too 
I think it comes down to one word and that is invest. Um, you guys know that the bet on women, uh, which uh, campaign was just kind of a rallying call when we first started CBD negotiations about three years ago. That's kind of morphed into invest in women because all these tired, old arguments, women's sports isn't profitable. Nobody is going to buy merchandise. You know, nobody watches. It's all BS. Um, the facts are the facts. And the most talked about athletes right now are female Olympic athletes. Yep. Um, you know, Neka Wumake, who didn't make the Olympic team for Nigeria, is one of the trending athletes right now um, because of her story, because of her yeah. plight. Um, so that old argument um, that we've seen with, you know, merchandisers, uh, with broadcast networks, uh, and all the other, um, you know, entities in the, in the sports orbit who have always said, nobody cares. It just doesn't bear uh, truth because the ratings are higher in many cases, or at least growing. Yeah. Merchandise flies off the shelves. So U.S. Women's National Soccer Team, for instance. So first of all, good businesses, you want to make more money than you put in. That's simple truth, right? <laughs> so why yeah. limit yourself, right? Right. So right. The, the women's national team wins the world cup a few years ago. They come back. There's literally not a piece of merchandise at Dick's or any other, you know, outlet, Yeah, not that. one piece of merchandise. They just were part of, if you knew they were part of the, the most watched soccer game in history. Yeah. Wouldn't you think that, well, because you get the same argument, nobody's going to buy it. They might buy 10 pieces. I can't make 10 pieces. So it took some leadership um, with Dick Sporting Goods and others to kind of say, you know what, we got to think, because a mindset is only a mindset until it's not. We got to think differently. Let's invest. Let's, and you know what, it paid off. And now, you know, you've got bobbleheads, you've got players on Wheaties boxes, you've got, you know, figurines that just came out today. Um, so I think invest in women's sports. Um, and it's you can't say you're supporting women's sports and not have anything tangible to back it up. It's the most infuriating and patronizing thing you can do is to say, I support women. But unless you're doing something, it's almost like the, um, the greening initiatives. Everyone says they're green. Right. But trust me, <laughs> that dude in the cubicle is still throwing his plastic bottle in, in the wrong basket. Like it's, it's yeah. still, it's, it, it, <laughs> right. it doesn't mean anything unless you're actually doing something. So, I think it, it comes from business investment. It comes from, you know, supporting their causes, showing up at games, um, you know, doing all the things that are going to get you a return, um, it, some value um, in some form or fashion. But, you know, the facts are the facts. So I think the big myth is now being kind of dispelled and people care. You now have women's leagues that are sprouting up all over the place. The NWSL is going bonkers with sponsorships and supporters and investors. So I think, again, um, invest in women. Um, you know, don't fall back in old, tired thinking and really get to know them because they are fascinating individuals. They're working yeah, yeah, women. Right. And yeah. I think now that the spotlight is a little bit more on them, um, they're showing their true colors. And that is being able to reach across, you know, um, different segments of, of our society um, and really being uh, more engaging probably than 
most other professional athletes on social. I think their numbers, according to Open Doors, are like much, much higher engagement rates than even NBA players. Yep. So it's there, man. You know, like I don't understand why it took so long for people yeah. like, to get it. And so you see on Twitter, like all these companies like, oh, you know, this is amazing. You know, women's sports are incredible. <laughs> well, you didn't say that 15 years ago. Exactly. You know? But yeah, talk is cheap. I think at the end of the day, talk is cheap, man. Are, you know, there's too many people are hiding behind their like fake activism. Yeah. And aren't actually yeah. supporting the things that they may publicly it's, say on social media or in their circles. So it's really important I think, you know, to continue I, the dialogue. Yeah. Listen, I was raised by a single mom. And I think some of my some of my passion for supporting women probably comes from that, like seeing her struggle and strive and work for jobs to kind of like, you know, make my life okay and not having the ability to go to medical school, you know, because her father's like, you don't go to medical school. Women don't go to medical school. So she went a different path. You know, she wasn't able to kind of stand up and kind of like go do what she really wanted to do. And so, you know, fast forward to college where I'm watching those women's basketball players. You know, Brenda Fries was on that team. Brenda's probably one of the greatest college basketball coaches right now in women's basketball. She never had a chance to go play pro. Yeah. There were no leagues. So maybe the Olympics, you know, were, was the outlet, but watching them strive, um, then seeing the WNBA launch, you know, and we went through all sorts of things at the league trying to promote that league. And many of them were not the right way, admittedly. But like, I remember Diana Taurasi walking into the NBA office, you know, when she was just drafted. I'm like, holy shit. Like, she had a presence, man. I was yeah. like, this, this woman is going to change sports. And guess what? She's playing like 20 years later. Um, and just to watch the development, to go through what I went through this past couple of years with the CBA and, you know, all the, the social um, justice initiatives, WNBA players changed the course of American politics yeah. by helping two senators, Democratic senators get elected. Yeah. They did that. Mm -hmm. So, that's pretty awe-inspiring. And I hope that more people will take the mantle and go do more. I wish I did more when I was younger, um, but go do more and to support these women. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the biggest things that I took away when we were at NYU was you, NYU did a fantastic job of ensuring that we understood the women are the future of sports and we need to support them in any way, shape we can because... I mean, it's just been ridiculous for the last, you know, 20 years or so, how long it's taken, especially like just how long it's taken for them to even earn the, a little bit of respect that they deserve. I mean, they deserve yeah. so much more for what they do, but. Well, it'd be interesting to see what we do over the next three to four years with Lydia Jacoby, right? The Alaskan swimmer who yeah. trained yeah. in, you know, uh, pools that were half the size in an apartment complex because her mom like really wanted her to, you know, um, pursue her dream like she a female swimmer from alaska is the story of the olympics right now so let's see what happens yeah. are, is she going to get drowned out with all the other stuff that happens or are we going to kind of like really you know use that story as a way to kind of propel other stories and other inspirational moments yeah. uh, that'll be interesting yeah uh just as yeah. a some we got uh, i think two or two or three more questions oh. um i think that what we really wanted to talk about was you're a professor. That's how we, we met you. You were a professor. And I think that you, especially, I think that we also know that education has changed a lot in the past year and a half. I think that higher education, especially is going to become something that might be unrecognizable. And in, in five years, we have no idea what that's going to look like. Um, 
So would love to hear your perspective on how you think academia has changed from maybe when you started to maybe uh, pre-COVID to maybe where you think it is now, where it will be. Um, because I think that, you know, especially teaching in a sports program, I think it's a very unique perspective in the sense that a lot of your classes were based on experience and, and meeting people and bringing people in. So I'd love to hear about uh, where, you, where you think this is going. Sure. Um, well, I think, I think pre-COVID and, and all the classes we had together, you know, you, you make a good point. Like, I really, I mean, I don't want you to walk out of NYU carrying a bunch of textbooks because um, that won't help you at all. So um, anytime you can bring in real world experience, people, one-on-one communication, because the sports industry is all about people. And, and connections. That's it. Um, literally, you will have five or six stops in your each of your careers. And every place you go, it'll be connected to where you just came from. And someone will have worked there. You, it just is the way sports. Is. So that kind of interaction is what fuels, I think, um, as young people, it fuels the way we have to instruct how to do business in sports. And so when you take that away, and we all of a sudden become remote and we lose that ability to interact with each other and one um, and feed off of each other, right? We're humans. Like we crave that. Yeah. It's exhausting. Um, I may have mentioned it. it Zoom was exhausting. Uh, it was exhausting for me, but I know it was exhausting for you because I saw it on <laughs> your faces. Um, yeah. Not you three, but I did see it in some of the end product too, by the way. <laughs> Uh, uh, Matthew, you did you did a great PowerPoint, Matthew. So don't worry about it. Um, I don't know, man. You guys always showed up, but but I saw it, and I and you know what? The the one word I could give you guys that I guess I learned what the true meaning of it was was empathy. I really was and still am truly empathetic to what the students were having to go through. But we were all figuring out on our you know together on our you know not like separately. We're all working on it together. And I think yeah. that's, that's probably the only joy that came from it, if there was any joy that came from that. <laughs> but what it did was it also, and I can't speak for NYU or other institutions, but what I think it did was it set off a bit of an alarm for some and maybe an opportunity bell for the others. So you're going to have a little bit of a hybrid, I think, at least for the short term, maybe long term hybrid, where students are either going to have a choice or you're going to have to implement some kind of remote access into your classrooms, or we didn't have that before. Um, that I think is going to be common yeah. because we figured out how to do it. Um, they'll figure out how to make money off of it. Uh, most Absolutely. Right. Most institutions yep. will. Yeah. Um, now how that portends to the future, this is where it gets scary because I think while I'm a big believer in the real world model, and in bringing you three into the world to actually um, learn in the heat of the moment and, you know, really test principles and, and all that stuff. I think what's going to happen is in this new generation that's coming up with, which I think is generation alpha or whatever it is, they're all AI, based, right? It's all artificial intelligence. You, you can get, you know, you can go to Egypt and, learn about the history of Egypt simply by sitting, you know, at your desk in your bedroom. Um, you know, you can have an instructor come in uh, that will be more AI based. And I think that's where learning will ultimately go. Maybe not in my lifetime, but definitely I think you'll see it 
um, over the next few decades. I think that's where we're headed. This is just the beginning of unraveling the traditional model. And hey, guys, look at all the other industries that have evolved, changed, adapted, or died. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Higher education is no different. Um, we're, we saw it with you know broadcast. We saw it with you know the entertainment industry. We saw it with you know booksellers. Every industry is going to go through it, and if you don't embrace it and figure out how to manage it, you don't survive. So I'm hoping that you know higher education we can at least maintain some of our personal one-on-one connections because I, I think it's going to do such a disservice to all of you if you lose all of that. Yeah. But I think that the the car is kind of the train has left the station wherever they say, I think we're already moving in that path. Um, yeah. I hope that NYU and I believe they will um, is going to maintain some of that traditional in-class um, experience. Yeah. Cause you guys, I mean, listen, you're part of a generation. You have all, again, you guys excluded uh, communicate <laughs> communication is going to be an issue, right? Cause you're, you know, you're the, the texting swiping, Absolutely. you know, Yep. Tweeting yeah. generation, right? <laughs> Learning how to communicate with each other one-on-one. Some of the best ideas are written on a cocktail napkin at a bar, yep. right? Yep. So deals were done. I've seen deals done. Big, huge, massive global deals done over a cup of coffee. Um, you get hired in jobs by having a cup of coffee. So those things I hope we maintain as best we can, but I'm a bit, I'm a bit skeptical of where or how long that's going to be able to sustain. Yeah. I hope it's yeah. not like the Star Trek, like virtual pod kind of. I hope not. <laughs> yeah. No. But it probably will be. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Elon Musk is going to make like a cyber education truck and it'll I be mean, like, you know? uh, exactly. Uh, I, I think just to wrap up, I think we wanted to ask this to every person that came on. Uh, so if you were looking to hire an, a candidate for an entry level position, what would you be looking for and how would you find those qualities? Oh, yeah. So I guess I would start with, can you write well? And I would probably look at your resume, typos, how you kind of, you know, how you present yourself, even though the resume is a little bit passe, but you still got to do them. Yeah. Then I go to your social media. Yes, I do. Yeah. I go to your social media, <laughs> see how you, how you communicate your thoughts and what you're sharing Hopefully it's private. I don't have to look at it. Um, <laughs> but can you write well? It's every question I've had in every job interview I've had. Can you write well? Um, what stands out on the resume is this, other than making sure it's tight and no typos. What are your blips? What are the blips on your screen? Um, have you done things that others thought you would never do? Um, oftentimes, at least I see it in sports, companies don't always want someone who um, is kind of in the office next door. They do want fresh perspective, different experiences. You guys have the advantage of being young. You're part of a generation that many of us don't always understand or how to, you know, know how to communicate with. Um, and I think, you know, coming from kind of the COVID generation now, like you are kind of like the, the COVID class in a way, yeah. you're going to bring like a totally different perspective. Um, and they're going to want to know how you did it, how you got through that. So I want to know what your blips are. What are the things you did? You went that way instead of this way. Right. I think that to me 
allows me to understand your story and allows you in an interview to tell your story. That's the one thing I would also underscore for you listeners, tell your story. I don't want you to regurgitate everything on your resume. Yeah, you've had great internships. That's awesome. But who did you meet at that internship? Changed your life. What lesson did you learn? I'm more interested in that um, than anything else. Skills uh, also, like go find your story. Like what's unique about it? You guys know the story. I had a student who said he played piano. Like, that's really cool, but why include that on your resume? Oh, because I played at Carnegie Hall. Why isn't that on your resume? <laughs> yeah, that, that yeah, should be up yeah. there. <laughs> like, that's a that's true story. That's a true story. Yeah, so, and the other thing I want to share uh, is that when you are preparing for interviews, um, there are some questions I think you should be prepared for. Now, these are not your traditional question, but here are the three things that I would love to hear um, answers to. And I think it's becoming a little bit more uh, frequent in, in some of the hiring managers that I work with that they care less about, um, you know, kind of what you did in the past, more about, you know, who you are, what kind of person you are. And these questions kind of feed into that. Number one, um, you know, what's the one mistake you made and how did you change from it? Okay. Too often, you know, you guys are, probably you've been asked in interviews like, Hey, what's your, you know, your greatest strength and your weakness. You're like, well, I don't have any weaknesses really. Um, but we all do. We all do. And it's, it's better to be honest Sadly. and be like, you know what, listen, yeah, you know, I kind of, I kind of effed up, you know, this one time, but here's, here's how I grew from it. That to me makes you much more hireable than someone who kind of, you know, BS their way through the answer. Yep. Secondly, yep. Um, you know, again, goes back to the blips. What have you done that maybe, someone else thought you'd never do. It can be something from your work experience. It can be something in your own life. I don't care, but I want to know more um, about a risk you took or how you bet on yourself when maybe someone else, you know, didn't. Third and last, what would your best friend say about you? Um, (laughs) Too often, right? Matt's like, oh, shit. Getting worried there. I don't know if it's repeatable. What he would say. <laughs> hey, that's another I mean, show. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, but like, what would your best friend say, right? So, like th- that—that actually um, kind of uh, you know triggers some very interesting responses. And I've asked these questions, by the way. I've tested these. Um, it, you know, sometimes you'll get the, well, you know, I'm I'm loyal. And, you know, I'm, I'm there for him or her and all that stuff, which is awesome. But like, I'm waiting for the one that says, you know, my best friend to say that I'm the guy who's going to drink the last beer or I'm the guy, you know, like I'm, I care more about <laughs> right. like, you know, what, what makes you unique in that friendship. So yeah. larger point is prepare for telling your story, prepare to talk about yourself. Um, much like, you know, Matt, when you asked me at the beginning, tell me about who you are. It's a hard question to answer. So if you prepare yeah. yourself with questions like that, it would kind of open it up a little bit. Yeah, I think that at the end of the day, if your best friend, like if you're answering that question, it's important that you don't say it in any any other way that somebody else would because no one's best friend is the same and no one's friendship is the same. So I think that if you're going to treat it like the unique friendship that it is, you have to have a unique answer and saying like, oh, I'm nice and funny and I'm a good friend. It's like, <laughs> yeah, every best friend is going to say that. But yeah. it's like you have your own little quirks and your own little intricacies that they would only understand so right. i think that's really good i haven't really i haven't I've really never heard thought that about one. that yeah so nope 
I will now think about it and constantly think that my best friends hate me. So I uh, <laughs> live in fear about that. Matt's exactly. going to be awake all night tonight just thinking about it. What would they say? <laughs> hey, I'm That's glad I have to be up in the morning for that too. <laughs> uh, well, Coop, just as a, I guess as a parting note, if there's any, any advice you have for prospective job seekers, anyone trying to get into the sports industry who isn't, because you were someone who I guess kind of moved laterally, although you had previous experience, but if there's any parting advice, let us hear it. Sure. Um, and I guess it, it probably starts with like my life mantra. And I actually have this tattooed on my body, which I can't show you the inside of my thigh right now, but I actually have this tattooed <laughs> on my body. Um, and, and that is success is not final. Failure is not fatal. The courage to continue is what counts. Um, I live my life by that in everything I do, uh, job related or personal. Um, it, it's really what drives me. And I think if you go into an industry that is very competitive, um, you know, many times, you know, you, you want to go work for the number one franchise in a, in a league, you're likely not going to get there. Um, so, you, so you really do have to kind of, and what that quote means is you have to, you know, strive. And if you strive, you're going to struggle. It's just the way life is. So don't be afraid of that, okay? And this all relates to sports. Um, a, a few other things I would tell you from personal experience is that we are not machine. Um, we don't have to run through walls um, without asking the question, why? Yeah. Uh, we, we don't have to wake up in the morning and feel that pit in the bottom of your stomach, like, oh my God, like I gotta go to work. I experienced that. Um, it's awful. I have colleagues now that still go through that. Like, get out, man, get out. Like, you, we're not machines. You don't have to do that. You control your life and your career. So as it relates to sports, similar, bet on yourself, right? Um, you cannot fail. Uh, and I would say, you know, don't underestimate your, you know, your own perseverance and capabilities. Um, you know, Lydia Jacoby is a good example, right? Yeah. Yeah. The other thing is, uh, human nature, we're all hunters. Okay. So don't be afraid to go pursue options. We all do. Um, you might be stuck in a job that you don't like or an internship or an apprenticeship or whatever it is. Go find something that's going to feed your soul. Your boss is doing it. Even though she tells you she's not, she is. Um, <laughs> trust me, trust me. Um, it's the nature of the business. Everyone's always hunting. They're always looking for that thing. We're always chasing something. Yeah. Um, there's there's great there's great um, energy and, and, and uh, you know vitality in doing that. You obviously it'd be great to stay in a job for 30 years and get that great pension, and people do that. But more often than not, we're all hunting. Um, the other stuff is is pretty straightforward. Experience. You guys have heard me say it. Networking. Um, you know, you're you're one one letter away from not working. So get out there. <laughs> Um, especially now the world's opening up a little bit, um, maybe yeah. <laughs> fingers crossed, but yeah. get out there, volunteer for stuff, go to conferences, even if it's remote, digital, virtual, whatever it is, get out there. Um, you know, don't be afraid to, and it, it definitely relates to sports. Like don't be afraid to roll up your sleeves and, and do the job that nobody else wanted to do. I learned more about the sports business from clipping newspaper articles. Um, making copies, gluing them onto other pieces of paper, making copies, 
you know, delivering those to the different executives at the Cardinals or the Suns, running errands, staying up late to get the job done. It all pays off. So don't be afraid. And that stuff still happens to this day. Yeah. The problem is yeah. the younger generation can sometimes say, well, you know, that, that's not what we're supposed to do. Well, it is. And that's how sports works. Like you got to start doing the events, pulling the cable at Madison Square Garden, you know, like that's how you do it. Um, I'll end with this. And that is be grateful. Um, if you're going into an industry for, the, you know, maybe it's your first job, uh, maybe you've got some great connections. Maybe you're struggling to find those connections, whatever it is, be grateful. Um, I left a vice presidency on September 12th, 2001. Um, I left the MBA in the middle of the worst recession, you know, in 50, 60 years. Uh, during COVID, think about all the people who have transitioned out, you know, um, on their own or, or otherwise. But I'm grateful um, that I've been able to kind of land on my feet, that I had confidence in my capabilities. And, you know, whether I was transitioning from sports to politics, to the arts, to, you know, whatever it is, I was grateful. Um, we only got one shot at this, guys. So be grateful for the opportunities. You're going into a business that is, like I said, competitive. But um, thankfully, in the world we live in now, there are no barriers. They have disintegrated. Yep. So sports has seeped into every other aspect of business. Everyone wants to be a sports, you know, um, be in sports and vice versa. We all want to be rock stars, but it's, <laughs> there's no, there's no, there's no lines anymore. So you yeah. have so much opportunity and just be grateful for every opportunity you get. Cause it will lead to something, whether it starts with a broken nose and lead you down the path to go work for, you know, the, the, uh, an NBA finals team, uh, two years later, three years later, ultimately the DC and it happened. Just be grateful for it. Yeah. Yep. That's I it. Com completely agree. And, you know, to end with a quote from our great philosopher, uh, Aubrey Graham, Drake, YOLO. You know, I think that at the end of <laughs> YOLO, the day, man. You, ended you only on live that. once. <laughs> you only live once. You know what? We are very grateful that you came on the podcast. We too. are. We are incredibly, incredibly grateful, grateful that you took time out of your busy schedule to come meet with us and, and you, come on our podcast. All three of you enrich me and I appreciate you and I look forward to having you hire me in the future. Thank you. Hey, <laughs> more than welcome to. But with that, we conclude this episode. Tune in a couple days, new episode. See you guys. Awesome.